0: There's something I find really fascinating and that's learning about the wildly different ways people react in a sudden emergency situation. Imagine you're in a restaurant and the main dining room is full of people. Everyone's talking, servers are buzzing around the various tables, people are enjoying their food. Then suddenly at the table next to you, a middle-aged man clutches his chest, yells out in pain, and falls from his chair. It's pretty clear he's having a heart attack. He's still conscious and breathing, but he is clearly in distress. And what does everyone do? No doubt there will be a person who will yell out for someone to call 911. There will be people who see what's happening and their first reaction is to quickly look around the room, like they're looking for help. There might be someone who goes to the man and tries to do CPR. Incidentally, if someone is still awake and breathing, you don't need to do CPR. I can guarantee that many of the people at the nearby tables will not do anything. They're definitely going to watch and see what happens, but they won't take any action themselves. And there will be some people who will immediately get up and get away from what's going on. Their brain tells them they need to leave. I know this because I've seen it happen. And there will be some people who remain calm and try to help. They'll make sure someone has called for paramedics or they'll just take out their phone and make the call. They'll get the man into a comfortable position, maybe talk to him, maybe check his pulse. These are the people you want to have around when something happens. But that's the interesting thing about this. If you've never been in a situation like that, you don't really know for sure how you'll react. My guest today, Jen, doesn't have to wonder about that. She knows how she reacts. That's because one day at work, in a retail clothing store, she turned around and was facing the barrel of a gun. Real people in unreal situations.
1: There is a man
2: standing in front of me in my bedroom. friend has been shot. I'm literally inside the river and I'm inside my
0: car.
1: He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire.
0: If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. I jumped on the hood of the car and
2: I held on.
0: And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes. And it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com/plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad, and then on with today's episode.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer.
0: When this happened, what kind of store was it? Where, where were you working?
1: It was a women's clothing store.
0: And uh, as I understand, the, there, was a, there had been a string of robberies for some time prior to this.
1: Yes. I'll tell you a little bit about how the robbery started. February, there was this string of robberies. They were happening about 20 miles north of where my store was located, and they were mostly women-owned stores. So clothing stores, nail salons, things of that nature. The store I worked at was a chain store. So some of our locations, 20 miles north of me, were hit by this robber. He did come in, ask for money, and it was reported. But at that time, he was not caught. So what happened is our company had a conference call to go over the steps and what we should and shouldn't do if we're involved in an armed robbery. And I remember a couple specific things. One was speak as little as possible move as little as possible because you don't want to startle the robber. So I heard that and I I remember thinking, okay, that's interesting tips and conversation, but I'll never need to use it, right? So the the robbery stopped for about a month and a half. And then all of a sudden, a women's clothing store had gotten hit again.
0: It just seems like it's such a weird... A weird target to go for a women's clothing store. I mean, you wouldn't think there's a lot of cash or, but I guess it's a, it's an easy target, easy victims. Is that, you think that was the logic behind it?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So it was, even if though there wasn't a lot of cash, there was less risk involved and he already hit 12 stores. So I guess when you start adding up the money, it probably is substantial. Yeah, I do think that that's why he chose to go with the the women clothing stores. So a month and a half later, he starts up again. So my district manager comes to visit. She is my boss because I am store manager. She asks, do you feel safe? I said, yes, because the robberies, again, were 20 miles north of my store. That seemed to be his pattern. So she went on her way. Four days later, it's a Saturday, 7 p.m., still light outside. We're in a strip center. So there are lots of stores that are next to me. Plus, there was a movie theater, not far away, hotel. So it was a very busy area. I am in the fitting room section, which is in the middle of our store. I have uh, about... Four people that I am helping. And it's a ladies' clothing store. It was close to Easter. Women are looking for dresses. I'm having fun like I always do. And I'm standing there and behind me, I hear, give me your money. And I I kind of just stopped, and your mind is registering those words, like I didn't really hear that right. So then I hear give me your money. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. I see a man in a mask and then my eyes go back to the gun. At that point, I turn and I start to head towards the register. I could see out of the corner of my eye, him wave the gun at the other people in the store. There was about nine others. For them to head To the register to follow me. So I remember I got to the first uh, register. I'm standing behind it. He has the other customers lined up in front of me, in front of the registers. He asked for their money, for their wallet, cash, anything that they had. I remember I took the money out of the till. And so, as to not speak, I took my hands and I kind of spread it across the coins. That was my, my way of asking, do you want the coins as well? And he shook his head no.
0: I've got to ask you this question. It seems like a lot of people in a situation like this would have been just panicked. But you're not only not panicked, but you were thinking back to that conference call where they told you don't speak much. So so you pointed to the coins instead of asking if, if he wanted the coins. How panicked were you at that point?
1: At that point, honestly, I had a couple of things going through my head. As I'm walking to the register and my mind is going on, how long has he been watching me to know that I was the person he had to come to? Had it been an hour? Had it been hours? Had it been days? Had it been weeks? Because generally, they'll case a store before they just walk in. So that is going through my mind as I'm walking to the register. And then at the register, I wasn't panicking. But what I heard was the customers, there was praying. In fact, one of the customers shushed the other customer because they were praying out loud and they didn't want to hear any noise. So I'm watching this unfold. I clean out the other register. And at that point, I knew from history that that's all he wanted. So he looks at the back of the store where our back door was. And he asked me, what is that? I said, well, that goes to our back room, the office and storage. He was like, I want you to go back there. I'm thinking in my mind, okay, this is not normal. I'm thinking, he has our money, so at this point, what else does he want? You're right. There are several people in this store. I had an out-of-body experience. I have children, but in that moment, I wasn't their mom. I wasn't a daughter. I wasn't an aunt. I became nobody so that I could be somebody For these people, I became their mom. I became very protective of them. These people who I may not have even spoken to, or I may have spoken to them for five minutes, it didn't matter. So, as to protect them, and this is uh, the point whenever I went to court that I would start to cry, but I ushered them to go in front of me because. Not knowing his intentions, if he was going to shoot somebody, because mind you, he's still pointing a gun at us, right? If he was going to shoot somebody, I wanted that person to be me. The customers are making their way because you have to go around a corner. So to understand, when you go through the back door on the right is the men and women's bathroom, drinking fountains. As you go straight, You go left around a corner, and right there is where our back door is. And he asked me if it was locked. And I told him it should be. And if you push on it, an alarm will go off. He asked me, Do you have a safe? I said, No, we don't. We get to the back. uh, So we go around the corner, and now where my desk is and where there's storage. He asks again, do you have a safe? And I said, no, we don't. And I'm getting concerned because in my mind, I know I'm telling the truth. But what if he doesn't believe me? What if he thinks I'm lying or trying to hide something? All of these things are going through my mind. It's kind of crazy. I get to the back. The other customers are lined up in front of my desk. At that point, he has me pull the phone out of the wall, and he asks for our cell phones. I watch the customers give up their most prized possession. You know, our phones are like our diary. They have photos. They have everything very personal to them. I still had my phone in my pocket, and I had on black pants that day, and I had a Android phone, I'll never forget it. I love that phone. Without him asking, we had another room back there, and I instinctually knew he was going to put us in that room. I also knew my phone in my pocket, the outline of it, when I had to turn to walk to go into that room, he was going to notice it. Reluctantly, I gave him my phone because understand. That phone was the only phone that we could potentially have left to call for help because I had to pull the other phone out of the wall. So I gave him my phone to not risk it being found hidden in my pocket. I was right. He asked what that room is. I told him it's storage. There's hangers in there and fixtures. Sure enough, he tells us to get in there. It is semi-dark. There's no windows in that room. We are lined up against the back wall. There are boxes of hangers. So I remember, like if you sit on a box of hangers, there's an indentation because it's not a solid thing to sit on. And I remember kind of leaning up against that and the indentation and the feeling, the form of the hangers on my bottom and my legs. At this point, I have crying, I have praying, I have people stunned, and the robber looks at me, and he says, does this door lock? I had no idea because we had never shut that door. He asked me again, does this door lock? Now, mind you, I, I already told him no to a safe, and I know that was the wrong answer, and I felt like I was answering him wrong again. And the last thing I wanted to do was to irritate him, right? But it, I didn't know. So he looked at us and he said, Don't say a word and no one will get hurt. Nobody said a word. He goes over to the door and he looks at us one more time, the gun pointed at us. Don't say a word and no one will get hurt. He pulls the door shut. And like, I'll never forget that sound because he had to pull it hard because the door had never been shut. So it, it needed to be worked in, I guess you could say. At that moment, I have crying. I have others trying to console others. I have praying. And then I have a lady who I will never forget because I was helping her the fitting room. She had the most beautiful eyes. Her eyes were just this beautiful brown, and I remember them. She started to have a panic attack back there, which was then elevating the anxiety in the room. I go over to her. I remember putting my arms on her upper arms, pushing her up against the wall, looking in her eyes, and saying, baby, I need you to stay with me. I need you to stay with me. It's going to be okay. Look at me. And she tried, but the panic was just taking over and I could slowly feel her body. I couldn't hold it up any longer. I looked at one of the other customers and I said, I need you to come here. I said, I can't hold her up and I don't want her to fall. So he comes over and he helps me to get her down to the ground. At this point, she is now having a major medical issue beyond a panic attack. Watching her, when you asked me, uh, when did I panic? That is the moment panic started to set in. I know how to put on a Band-Aid. I don't know how to do anything beyond that. I don't watch ER. I don't watch any of those shows, and that's just not for me. So the other people in the room are trying to give their suggestions on what we should do, but something inside was like, no, that's not right. That's not what we're supposed to do. Fortunately, my coworker was able to hide her phone. I was so thankful. Before she called, I could hear the doorbell go off. That signaled somebody. Had left or somebody had come in. I'm thinking the robber left, right? And I'm inside, I'm like, okay, that's good. I don't know for sure, but that is potentially good. A couple seconds later, I hear the doorbell go off again. I'm like, that's not good. I don't know if anybody else in the room heard the bell. I'm thinking they probably didn't. So they didn't understand what could be going on in this situation. I told my coworker, I said, get behind me. I said, I need you to call 911. In my mind, I had her get behind me because if the robber had come back and he opened that door, I didn't want him to see her on the phone. So she called. They answered quickly. And, you know, we're on our way. Meanwhile, this lady is getting worse. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm swallowing down panic. And I'm going, if, if anything happens to her, I'm not going to be okay. Because, you know, I was in this mom mode and you're ultra protective. I asked my coworker for her phone. I said, I need to call again. I said, you stay behind me. Because again, I heard the two doorbells. So chances were likely that there was somebody else in the store. I call, they immediately answer. And I, I was like, listen, I need your help. I was like, I have this lady with a medical emergency, and I don't know what to do. The lady on the phone was wonderful. She walked me through some steps that I could take to get her stabilized, at least, until help would arrive. She stayed on the phone with me, and her voice and her instructions was what I needed in that moment. It took some responsibility off me because I was... And overdrive, the adrenaline, because I still hear crying. It's still semi-dark. Uh, all of like my senses, I don't know how I didn't panic because it was just sensory overload for sure.
0: We definitely got to give credit to the 911 operators of the world because they have the ability to stay calm in virtually any situation. Pretty amazing.
1: Absolutely. And I needed that. And I needed the direction. And they said, just stay on the phone with us. And just knowing that somebody was there was reassuring as well. I will never forget the moment that door was shoved open. It made the same sound as when it was closed. My initial thought for a second was, oh my God, it's the robber. He's back. But then I saw it was our police officers, our law enforcement. The sigh of relief. it was like everybody took a deep breath in that room. And it was the feeling I had inside was so thankful. It was great to have somebody on the phone helping me. But when you have that live person there, it makes such a difference. And, really through the whole thing, you without realizing it, your safety is slowly being unraveled, you know, your sense of being safe. And the moment the police officers opened the door, I could feel it uh, stop unraveling. It was amazing, just their presence, how it impacted the situation and how it impacted me. At that point, help had arrived for the lady. The other customers were ushered out of the room, and I remember they were all situated in the shoe department because the police officers needed to get their information for anything further that they needed. The officer looked at me, and he said, you look rather calm for everything you've just been through. And I told them, I said, give me a few hours, and I won't be. I said, right now, I need a cigarette. So... I no longer smoke, but back then I did. And I probably could have just smoked a whole pack, to be honest with you. But I came back in and I could see outside the yellow tape, you know, police line do not cross. And I could see the blue lights flashing. And it was unreal because I saw that stuff in the movies and on TV. But now I'm actually witnessing it right outside my store.
0: Your place of employment, where you go to work every day, it's now a crime scene. That's got to be pretty surreal.
1: It really was. And the magnitude didn't even really hit me in that moment. It's like everything is just um, a scene. Somebody had asked me how long the incident lasted. And I said, in those situations, it's not about time, it's about events, it's about the sequence of the way things happen. So honestly, I don't know how long it was, but I can tell you step-by-step step what was going on.
0: I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with CookUnity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV, and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked, so when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day, I heat it for a few minutes, and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing.
2: Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what.
0: Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. A little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully, that's all backed up by science, and all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature, and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try.
2: Trust your gut with Seeds D S O one Daily Symbiotic.
0: Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seeds
2: DS-01 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code
0: 25what.
1: So I called my district manager, I called my parents, and then uh, I started to work with the police and giving them the details of everything that had happened. I called a girlfriend who came and picked me up and I was going to stay with her for the night. As probably about an hour into helping the police officers, I could feel the adrenaline start to dissipate. I could feel the, my body wanting to shake, my legs getting very weak, starting to set in. I could not drive anywhere. I was not capable. So my girlfriend picked me up. We went home and we drank because that's what you do when you're going through traumatic things is you you want to numb it and you want to forget it. Next morning, I remember she drove me back to the store. And again, I met the detective and other law enforcement officers. We walked through the steps again because I I really didn't sleep. In fact, I had sunglasses on when I met them because my eyes were red and puffy. And quite honestly, they were unrecognizable. When I looked in the mirror, I didn't even recognize myself. Everything was just... Crazy. So I was back at the store helping them any way that I could. I had an immense need to give them information, to be there with them, whatever they needed.
0: Did they get a statement from you the day before, or did they say, okay, go ahead, take care of yourself, come back tomorrow and we'll get a full statement, more details?
1: No, they will get a statement. Right away, because everything is still fresh in your mind and the adrenaline was still there. So no, they I gave them as much information as I could possibly remember. But you're right in asking that because as time went on, then the little details started to uh, I started to remember them. And I was really amazed, honestly, when you're in high stress situations, what you remember. Because I remember customers from earlier that day I remember what they were wearing like it was interesting so I learned that we take in way more in our environment than we actually realize
0: yeah it's just being able to access it afterwards sometimes that's the tough part but mm-hmm. you were able to pull up a bunch of details though huh?
1: I was and obviously I still can even though I've told my story more often I'm amazed at what I still, remember uh as victims turn survivors it's you never forget you never forget you might not realize it uh, as much but i know as i tell my story it gets a little bit easier but yeah you never forget and it will forever affect your life to be honest with you
0: did your company give you time off work after this
1: Mhm. I was given 10 days off. I lived by myself, so I had someone come and stay with me. And odd things happened. I guess you could say my sense of safety was not broken, it was shattered. Completely shattered. I didn't feel safe anywhere. So I had someone stay with me, and I don't know why, but I could not go in my bedroom. I would not sleep in there. I got out the few things that I needed, and that was it. I, I don't know why. I would not go in there. I had two cats who didn't like strangers, so I got to where, number one, I put a sliver of paper in the door jam on the bottom. So if I came home and that paper was on the ground, I knew somebody had been in my home. I also knew if my cats weren't there, that somebody um, somebody was in the house because they were always there to greet me. So now you're probably wondering maybe why I'm taking so many safety precautions. And I didn't mention this before, but it's very important is other than my cell phone, he also had taken my wallet. And I didn't realize that right away. So my wallet had my current address. So now the robbers had my wallet and my cell phone, and I'm supposed to be living by myself, right? They never found my personal items. So it's floating around out there. It was very scary. So yes, within my 10 days, like you said, I did have the 10 days off. The first week I spent pretty much every day uh, with the detectives or at the police department. About 24 hours after the robbery, I get a phone call at night or early in the morning. I'm talking like midnight, one o'clock in the morning. I get a phone call. From one of the police officers, or it might have been the detective, to say we got him, and I was so relieved.
0: I guess they knew that you you wouldn't mind getting a phone call at one in the morning with that kind no. of
1: No, no. In fact, my first question was, "Does he have my my phone and my wallet?" And they were like, "No, ma'am. We weren't able to recover that." Well, in the process of the investigation. I had told them that on my phone, I had an app called Where's My Droid, which is a cell phone locator. So at one point, they had used that app. And that is what had led them to about 20 miles north in the area where the other robberies had occurred. And they found him there at a bar having a good time.
0: So he must have had your phone with him at that time then?
1: Yes. He never got rid of it, which is good and bad. As a robber, I don't know why you would keep someone's cell phone knowing that technology is is very advanced. You can find all kinds of things using your phone. But no, he kept it.
0: Why weren't they able to get your phone back then if he had it at, at that time?
1: I You know, I don't know. I never asked that question. That actually is a really good question. And in that moment, I didn't think of that. I think I was so relieved that they got him. But that's a really good question, and I don't have the answer to that.
0: Yeah, technology is advanced, but the IQ of a criminal isn't necessarily quite as advanced.
1: (laughs) You are exactly right about that. (laughs) So So I was dealing with these triggers at home, feeling very unsafe. But I decided that I needed to see my family also within this time frame. Uh, they lived a couple hours north of where I did, my brother and my sister. And I um, arranged to also make sure that my, my children were there. Fortunately, they were staying the night at a friend's house at the time that you know all of this happened. My kids, they always had play guns. I I didn't have a problem with guns. I still don't have a problem with guns, to be honest with you. I grew up in very much a, a hunting home. So I was familiar with guns, hunter safety, all of that other stuff. But I told my children, you can't bring your guns. I was like, I can't see them. They're airsoft guns, whatever it was. Went up. To my family's house, and usually we would play cards, have a good time, but all I could do was sit there on the couch. And I remember just playing Angry Birds on my phone because at that point I had gotten a new phone. I remember behind me hearing my sister in law say, I don't know what to do for her. She's just sitting there. And I find that one of the challenges for victims is their family because. They don't know what to do. They want to help you, but they don't know what to do because, quite frankly, the victim doesn't know what they need. Their world is so turned upside that they, I guess, just being quiet and and being distracted by this electronic game was all I could handle at this time. I needed their presence. So I think it's really important that families know that presence, just the presence, is important. And we don't necessarily need you to fix anything in that moment. But I remember that was kind of hard for them because I wasn't the normal gen that they were used to and they didn't know how to handle it. But we made it through it. It's it's okay. In the meantime, after the robber, they caught the driver as well. I had never seen the driver. But I ended up having to go to jury trial for him. I had never been in front of a jury. I had never been in a courtroom, nothing. And for me, that was a shocking, traumatic situation.
0: What was traumatic about being in the courtroom?
1: All I knew was what you see on TV. But I had to... You get up in on this stand. You have... 10 strangers looking at you listening to your words you have someone looking at you in the courtroom who I've never seen they just wanted to know the trauma as an accomplice what he had done to me but what also I didn't realize is that when I went into the courtroom his family was there his friends were there all of a sudden, a new fear set in of, Oh my gosh, they know what I look like. They know what I drive. They could follow me home. So that was really tough because even if I started to get a sliver of feeling safe back, it was now gone again. And this new fear, new fear came in that I had to deal with. And I asked the, the law enforcement, I said, I said, what if they follow me home? And they like, you know, the chances of that happening is very slim. It's just not something they tend to do. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, I didn't think I'd get robbed either. So, you know, I wasn't trying to to uh, beat the odds or anything like that. So that was uh, that was really interesting. That was a whole new step to this process. I start therapy. Mind you, this is still going within the 10 days. I start therapy. And that was very helpful. I don't remember a lot of my conversation with him, but I've always been an advocate of therapy anyway. I think if you deal with people, you need therapy. I just, it's really helpful in building relationships and learning how to cope with things because we're all different. My 10 days are up and I was expected back to work. My therapist said, no, you are not ready. But I told him, I said, I have to go. I have to try because I am one of those people where I don't stop halfway down a road and wonder what if the rest of my life I have to go to the stop sign and know. So I went back to work. It was very weird to walk in, especially into the back room. I kind of stood there and it was like light bulbs going off, different triggers of, just things I remember standing in front of my desk, the phone that was pulled out of the wall, hearing that door be pulled shut that had never been shut before. I would not go into the room with the hangers where we were left. I wouldn't go in there and I never did. I remember we had a conference call led by my district manager and she asked me how I was. I said, I don't think I'm okay. And she said, well, you know, you're going to have to figure it out because this is the busiest time of the year. I understood that because it was business. She still has a business to run and, and numbers to make and all of these other things. What was really hard for me is I was a very accomplished manager. I was successful. I had a huge impact on the district numbers and performance, things of that nature. It was fun. I was a media spokesperson for the local market. So I really enjoyed that. So as I'm sitting here having this conversation with my district manager and admitting that maybe I can't do this or maybe I can't do it right now, brought about feelings of inadequacy. Uh, weakness, I felt like I just saved these people's lives and you're just going to discard me. So all of this, it's, it, now it's a new feeling that I'm trying to process as well.
0: Yeah. You're, you're, it sounds like your your work performance was almost a big part of your identity. And now you seem to be losing that as well. That's got to be pretty tough. Can
1: you know, You're exactly right about that. It was uh, very much a part of my identity. Uh, I thrived at my job. I enjoyed working with people, training, development. I was only with the company a couple of months, and then they they gave me my own store. I got credit card signups like no other really known for that. I would teach classes on it over conference calls. So it was very much my identity, very much my Success, my title, all of those things. So I get up from the desk after my uh, conference call and I go to head out to the sales floor. All of these thoughts going through my mind. I can feel myself kind of anxiety trying to set in, right? I start to come out of the back room and I stop because there's a man right there. I about burst into tears. Um, My assistant manager came over. I grabbed her arm. She was like, Are you okay? And I said, No. I said, This is what happens to me. And the gentleman is apologizing to me. And I was like, No. I was like, It's not you. It's me. You know, that famous relationship line. If it was ever true in my life, it was in that moment. And I felt so bad and I was embarrassed. And come to find out, he actually was our security guard that they had re- reinstilled that service into our store. I told my assistant manager, I said, I can't do this. I said, I I know now I definitely cannot do this. I called my district manager and I told her what happened. And I said, I'm really sorry. I was like, but I can't do this. And I could hear the disappointment in her voice, which was really hard to hear uh, because it reinstilled the disappointment that I felt in Myself and why can't you be strong enough? Why can't you just get over this? You're fine. Everybody lived, you know, move on. But it doesn't work that way. I continued to go to therapy. I was on workman's comp for I believe it was six weeks. Mind you, it's just me. So I can't be without work. I have bills to pay. So now I'm without a job. I'm going to therapy. I'm on workman's comp, which is not 100% pay and i have to find a way to find another job in the process the robber now i have to go to court for him i tell you i had a stack of subpoenas i must have had about 25 of them because for me being the main witness you had to go for motions you had to go for pre trial i had to be there for all of these things even if it was just to sit on the bench, I had to be present. So trying to find a new job, I had to automatically explain, listen, there are times when I can't come to work because I'm not given notice. I'm given like the night before, okay, we need you in court at 9am. So it made it challenging because a lot of, especially in retail, you know, a lot of individuals don't understand that process because again, they're focused on business. I went in front of a jury, again, for the robber. Every time back then, it was so hard. I just cried. I just cried and cried and told my story. He ended up being sentenced to jail. I don't remember how long There's facts that you don't necessarily, you're aware, but you don't really care about because you're really just trying to forget this. And yet I'm being dragged back into court again and again, and now I have to see him again, and you just want it to go away. So I knew he was sent to jail. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, that's fine. I was starting to feel safe again and work through all of those feelings. I ended up finding another job which was good. It was a little bit further away in my same field. So that worked out fine. About two years later, when I thought this was all over and I thought I had dealt with the emotional trauma, I had moved a couple hours north, so I wasn't even in the same area, kind of wanting to start over, right? I get a phone call. I'll never forget where I was standing. The phone call comes through and it's, we need you to come to federal court. And I told the lady, I said, I can't. I said, I, I can't. And I started to cry and she was like, I'm sorry, but I, I, you're gonna have to come. Everything came flooding back and all I could do was cry. I went home. It was about a month Later, that court date was scheduled. It was an hour and a half away. So I drove there. And I remember this was the first time that all of us had been together. All of us victims were in this room.
0: So everybody in the store that was in the store at the time was uh, attending this court session.
1: Yes, we were all called into federal court but it was it was a very serious situation because he had multiple robberies in multiple counties. So this was not just, not that anything is simple, but this was not just one store in one county. Like There were several things involved, and this was not his first crime.
0: So what was it like seeing all those people again, the people that you had been through this traumatic experience with?
1: Actually, I was thankful to see them. Because the one thing that I thought of all the time is I wanted to thank them. I wanted to thank them for trusting me to not react. One of them could have wanted to be a hero. Anything could have happened in that scenario when you're dealing with that many people. And I looked at them and I I just said, thank you. And I was so thankful for that opportunity. And then they went around the room and they wanted to know, they wanted to compensate us for our mileage and whatnot. The lady came to me and I just started to cry. And I said, ma'am, I just want you to leave me alone. I said, I don't want your money. I said, I don't want anything. I just want you to leave me alone. And that was hard because I was the only one crying there amongst the other victims turned survivors. This courtroom was very different. It was much darker. there were more people. It was bigger. I remember walking down the aisle and getting in my little box. I had the judge once I was sitting, I had the judge on my left and I had the robber right in front of me. He had on glasses now. and the jury was also on my left. I started to be asked questions and I asked for Kleenex because I just cried. And I remember that Kleenex ended up being a ball almost disintegrating in my hand because I tried to wipe up the tears and they finally brought me some water to speak so I could speak as well. The toughest thing about that is they tried to tear apart my character. And as soon as they started to do that, The person who was assigned to defend us stood up and said, No, you know, we're not going to do this. That's not fair. So it was stopped. And I'm really glad what a victim goes through. There were times, and I'm just going to be honest, but there were times where I wish I didn't know the robber. I wish I didn't see him. I wish all of those things because going to court was. Harder than I think going through the whole incident. The incident lasted, let's just say minutes, but court now I'm up to two years.
0: You keep ripping open the same wound.
1: Exactly. And I had to see him. I don't want to see him. I finish day one of being in front of the jury. I don't remember what happened, but I had to come back again. Drove back the next morning, and I got on the stand. And again, I was asked more questions. Finally, the judge looks at me, and he says, is there anything else you would like to say or ask? And I looked at him, and I said, sir, do I ever have to come back? And he said, no, ma'am, you don't. And I looked at him, and I said, thank you. And I walked out that courtroom, never to return, Now I have not returned and I hope I never have to be in a courtroom again. I do want to say this because court was really tough and that is absolutely how I felt in that moment, but I would do it again because there are many who live with the, they didn't catch him. What is he going to do next? He already went from just taking money and leaving to now abducting people. So what would be next? So for me, I at least got closure knowing that I helped to put him away because I've talked to other people where they never got caught and then they live with wondering what else has he done?
0: I've heard you say that you had thoughts after this of what could have happened and that was your, that was kind of what haunted you, What, how, how it could have gone worse. Why do you think? That, those kind of thoughts came into your head.
1: That's a really good question. And I've had conversations because some people look at it as what could, ha- what could have they have done different to change the outcome? I don't think there's anything that I could have done different, but there are things that could have went wrong. One of the other victims could have tried to be a hero when we went into the back room we passed the bathrooms and what if he took me in there and raped me what if he shot me i put myself in a position where those things could have happened and i already knew that this was not his normal behavior from the prior robberies those things haunted me those those questions so that that was what was challenging for me because When you're in those situations, you just don't know. Everything is a series of events. I'm fortunate that none of that did happen.
0: It's been several years since this took place. Mm -hmm. And just, I mean, prior to our conversation here, I was doing some research and I found the robber's mugshot and I sent it to you asking, is this the guy? And you had not seen his face in years. What went through your head when you saw him again?
1: Honestly, the same thing right now is I, I I don't have a problem getting information. I think it's important. But no, I hadn't seen his face in, I don't know, 10 years. And so I think it really shocked me that when I did, I kind of like now, except I definitely cried it triggered something that I thought I had perhaps worked through and it made me realize that I hadn't, but that that's okay because I don't have to look at his face, you know, often I did it for research purposes and I would do it again. Absolutely. But yeah, that, that um, I, I have chills now. Yeah. It, it the reaction Surprise me. Maybe it should, maybe it shouldn't.
0: If someone listening to this conversation has a family or a friend who's been through something like what you went through, what's the best thing for them to do or to say to help that person?
1: That's a really good question because honestly, as a victim, we don't really know ourselves. And I think that's part of the frustration, but maybe even sadness for family members is because we don't want to see someone else hurting. There's a natural instinct to help, right? If you see somebody has a cut, you want to put a Band-Aid on it. You want to help with the healing process. But for me, I, I didn't even know what I needed. I just knew that I needed them around me because I felt safe and I knew They loved me. So presence, I think just the presence is all that somebody really needs in the beginning. And if they want to talk, they'll talk. And with you being there, they know that you're there to listen if that's what you need.
0: It seems that this experience has kind of spawned a new adventure for you. And that is your own podcast.
1: I believe everything happens for a reason. And I've often asked myself, why did this happen to me? Um, but I think now uh, it's it's come into light via my podcast, I Need Blue. It is a victim turn survivor advocate show based upon real stories such as mine, but on any topic. It's not just limited to robberies. Uh, and there is sensitive information, so I always make sure that People are aware of that as well. I wanted a place for victims turned survivors to share their stories, to share their fears, their tears, their joys, their accomplishments, where they are today, what they did to get there. I think it's really important because when you realize you're not alone, it makes the healing process easier. In turn, as you heard me say, one of the most memorable, thankful moments of that experience was when the police officers pushed that door open. I will never forget that moment instilled a little bit of the safety, that feeling of being safe in me that had been lost. And I'll never forget that. And they were there through the whole process and helping me, you know, having to go back to the scene and helping them with whatever they needed. They were very sensitive to my needs, emotionally, physically, whatever, as a victim. So they were very patient and empathetic and helpful. And I really feel that that side of what they do needs to be told because not everybody goes through this experience. And until you do, you don't understand and you don't appreciate it. So thank you to them.
0: And that's why you named the podcast, I Need Blue, blue indicating uh, law enforcement. And so where can people find this show? Do you have a website?
1: I do. It's www.ineedblue.net. Ineedblue.net.
0: And if people like hearing the story that you just told, you're going to have some similar stories on that. And I know my audience loves hearing firsthand true stories.
1: Absolutely. I just launched my fifth episode this morning. So really excited about that. And if any of your listeners have a story they want to share, absolutely. Contact me because I want to help you. Uh, I'm a platform for you to share your story to help others.
0: And we'll have links to all of that in the show notes for this episode. And uh, Jen, thanks again.
1: Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for helping me share my, my story.
0: If you liked Jen's story, there's another episode of this podcast that you might also enjoy. The guest was a young man named Joey. He was working delivering pizzas, and he ended up saving a woman who was being held hostage. Here's a short clip from that story.
2: So I gave him the food, and then um, at one point he just kind of grabbed the box and then opened it up just to make sure the toppings were right and she's like, hey, is this, and he was asking um, the woman he was with, like, is this what you ordered? She's like, yeah, that's what I ordered, and then I just happened to look up at her, and while he was kind of looking down at the pizza, that's when I noticed that she had a black eye on her, this was her left eye? And she pointed to it, and she mouthed, help me, to me. Like, she didn't actually say it, she just wanted for me to see that she needed help without vocally or uh, vocally saying it so he wouldn't hear.
0: That episode is called Joey Prevented a Kidnapping, and it's at whatwasthatlike.com slash 10 because it was episode number 10 of this podcast. Thanks to listeners like you, yeah, I'm talking to you, this podcast continues to grow. At this point, each episode has tens of thousands of listeners just in the first 30 days of being published, and we're on our way to making that hundreds of thousands of listeners for each episode. One thing that's happened with the growth of the audience is that I have a lot of listeners who discover the show, they listen to all the past episodes, and then they think, hey, I have a story that might be good for the podcast. So they go to the website and click on Submit Your Story, and they tell me what happened. And I love that. So if you're thinking about maybe sending in a story, I wanted to let you know about a few types of stories that I typically don't cover, and a few stories that I'm actually looking for right now. The ones I usually have to decline are mostly in three areas. Number one, anything to do with the paranormal. There are lots of podcasts doing those stories, so I leave that to them. Number two, stories that are mostly medical related. Like someone has a rare disease and was given a 1% chance of survival and now it's five years later and they're still alive. It's a great story, but I just don't do them here on this show. And number three. Stories where the primary topic is drugs, alcohol, or sex. These stories are just way too common, and honestly, I don't really find them interesting. If someone did something stupid while they were drunk, I really don't care. I mean, you've seen the kind of stories I do on this podcast. A story about being drunk or high, it just wouldn't really fit in. Now, having said all that, there are a few stories that I'm interested in covering, I'd like to talk to someone who has lost a limb due to a shark attack. I'd like to have someone on who was a passenger in a car when it was hit by a train. I'd also like to talk to someone who was trapped in rubble for a few days after an earthquake and then rescued. And there's a particular occupation I'd like to hear about. Someone who's an employee at a prison and in charge of execution. Those are just a few of the stories I'm actively pursuing. If you know of anyone like that, or if you yourself have been through something like that, please get in touch with me. You can contact me through the website or submit your story right from there. That's at whatwasthatlike.com. And now, this week's listener story. Stay safe, and I'll see you in two weeks. This happened to me a few months ago at my current workplace. Occasionally, my wife will be a very kind
2: soul and will actually make my lunch for me for work if I don't end up having time the night beforehand. Sometimes, when she does this, she'll include a note on. She'll write down to a napkin or a paper towel. Usually, it says something like "Have a great day" or such. This time, she wrote a note that said, "I love you," uh, you know. Dash. I love me. In Sharpie and on a paper towel. I work in an office and it has a small break room where I eat my lunch. On this particular day, I sat down in the break room. Um, at my work, and began eating my lunch, you know, it's a normal situation. On this table, there happened to be a black Sharpie and a roll of paper towels. I set them aside to give myself a little room to eat. I set up all my things and began eating and watching a video on my phone. As I'm eating, one of the department heads comes in, and a few moments later, so does my boss. I chat a little with them both, and while talking, uh, the department head happens to look at the note my wife wrote me on a paper towel in Sharpie next to the roll of paper towels and a Sharpie. The same note that says, I love you, love me. He then proceeds to ask, did you write yourself a note? And I had to look at the note, the Sharpie, the paper towels, as well as my boss and the department head. And they seemed to have a very growing sense of concern for me. I quickly realized how it must appear to both of them. And as my my mouth was stuffed with food, I had to very quickly uh, explain to them that I'm not, in fact, in need of serious emotional help. It didn't help that I was also laughing at the time, and it was a very hard situation to believe. Luckily, they both laughed and believed me, and they haven't brought it up since, so hopefully I'm doing pretty good there. Thank you very much for listening, and um, have a great day.